Part 2, a Volume 2 of Plutarch's Parallel Lives. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lenny. Volume 2 of Plutarch's Parallel Lives of the Noble Greeks and Romans. Translated by Bernadotte Perrin. Themistocles, Part 2. Some tell the story that while Themistocles was thus speaking from off the deck of his ship, an owl was seen to fly through the fleet from the right and alight in his rigging. Wherefore, his hearers espoused his opinion most eagerly and prepared to do battle with their ships. But soon the enemy's armament beset the coast of Attica down to the haven of Phalerum, so as to hide from view the neighboring shores. Then the king in person, with his infantry, came down to the sea, so that he could be seen with all his hosts. And presently, in view of this junction of hostile forces, the words of Themistocles ebbed out of the minds of the Hellenes, and the Peloponnesians again turned their eyes wistfully towards the isthmus, and were vexed if any one spake of any other course. Nay, they actually decided to withdraw from their position in the night, and orders for the voyage were issued to the pilots. Such was the crisis when Themistocles, distressed to think that the Hellenes should abandon the advantages to be had from the narrowness of the straits where they lay united, and break up into detachments by the cities, planned and concocted the famous affair of Sicinus. This Sicinus was of Persian stock, a prisoner of war, but devoted to Themistocles, and the pedagogue of his children. This man was sent to Xerxes, secretly, with orders to say, Themistocles, the Athenian general, elects the king's cause, and is the first one to announce to him that the Hellenes are trying to slip away, and urgently bids him not to suffer them to escape. But, while they are in confusion and separated from their infantry, to set upon them and destroy their naval power. Xerxes received this as the message of one who wished him well, and was delighted, and at once issued positive orders to the captains of his ships, to man the main body of the fleet at their leisure, but with two hundred ships to put out to sea at once, and encompass the strait round about on every side, including the islands in their line of blockade, that not one of the enemy might escape. While this was going on, Aristides, the son of Lysimachus, who was the first to perceive it, came to the tent of Themistocles, who was no friend of his, nay, through whom he had even been ostracized, as I have said. And when Themistocles came forth from the tent, Aristides told him how the enemy surrounded them. Themistocles, knowing the tried nobility of the man, and filled with admiration for his coming at that time, told him all about the Sassinus matter and besought him to join in this desperate attempt to keep the Hellenes where they were, admitting that he had the greater credit with them, in order that they might make their sea-fight in the narrows. Aristides, accordingly, after bestowing praise upon Themistocles for his strategy, went round to the other generals and triarchs, inciting them on to battle. And while they were still incredulous, in spite of all, a Tanian trireme appeared, a deserter from the enemy, 
in command of Panaceus, and told how the enemy surrounded them, so that, with a courage born of necessity, the Hellenes set out to confront the danger. At break of day, Xerxes was seated on a high place and overlooking the disposition of his armament. This place was, according to Phanodemus, above the Heracleum, where only a narrow passage separates the island from Attica. But according to Assistodorus, it was in the borderland of Megara, above the so-called Horns. Here, a gilded throne had been set for him at his command, and many secretaries stationed near at hand, whose task it was to make due record of all that was done in the battle. But Themistocles was sacrificing alongside the admiral's trireme. There, three prisoners of war were brought to him, a visage most beautiful to behold, conspicuously adorned with raiment and with gold. They were said to be the sons of Sandos, the king's sister, and Artaicetus. When Euphrantidas, the seer, caught sight of them, since at one and that same moment a great and glaring flame shot up from the sacrificial victims, and his knees gave forth its good omen on the right, he clasped Themistocles by the hand, and bade him consecrate the youths, and sacrifice them all to Dionysus Carnivorous, with prayers of supplication. For on this wise would the Hellenes have a saving victory. Themistocles was terrified, feeling that the word of the seer was monstrous and shocking, but the multitude, who, as is wont to be the case in great struggles and severe crises, looked for safety rather from unreasonable than from reasonable measures, invoked the god with one voice, dragged the prisoners to the altar, and compelled the fulfillment of the sacrifice, as the seer commanded. At any rate, this is what Phineas the lesbian says, and he was a philosopher, and well acquainted with historical literature. As regards the number of the barbarian ships, Aeschylus the poet, in his tragedy of the Persians, as though from personal and positive knowledge, says this. But Xerxes, and I surely know, had a thousand ships in number under him. Those of surpassing speed were twice five score beside and seven. So stands the count. The Attic ships were one hundred and eighty in number, and each had eighteen men to fight upon the decks, of whom four were archers and the rest men-at-arms. Themistocles is thought to have divined the best time for fighting, with no less success than the best place, inasmuch as he took care not to send his triremes bow on against the barbarian vessels until the hour of the day had come, which always brought the breeze fresh from the sea, and a swell rolling through the strait. This breeze brought no harm to the Hellenic ships, since they lay low in the water and were rather small. But for the barbarian ships, with their towering sterns and lofty decks, and sluggish movements in getting under way, it was fatal, since it smote them and slew them round, broadside to the Hellenes, who sat upon them sharply, keeping their eyes on Themistocles, because they thought he saw best what was to be done, and because confronting him was the admiral of Xerxes, Arianinus, who, being on a great ship, kept shooting arrows and javelins as though from a city wall, brave man that he was, by far the strongest and most just of the king's brothers. It was upon him that Emianius, the Decilian, and Socles, the Pianian, bore down, they being together on one ship, and as the two ships struck each other bow on, crashed together, and hung fast by their bronze beaks, he tried to board their trireme, but they faced him, 
smote him with their spears, and hurled him into the sea. His body, as it drifted about with other wreckage, was recognized by Artemisia, who had it carried to Xerxes. At this stage of the struggle, they say that a great light flamed out from Eleusis, and an echoing cry filled the Thriasian plain down to the sea, as of multitudes of men together conducting the mystic Ilacus in procession. Then, out of the shouting throng, a cloud seemed to lift itself slowly from the earth, pass out seawards, and settle down upon the triremes. Others fancied they saw apparitions and shapes of armed men coming from Aegina, with their hands stretched out to protect the Hellenic triremes. These, they conjectured, were the Iacide, who had been prayerfully invoked before the battle to come to their aid. Now, the first man to capture an enemy's ship was Lycomedes, an Athenian captain, who cut off its figurehead and dedicated it to Apollo, the laurel-bearer, at Phlea. Then the rest, put on an equality in numbers with their foes, because the barbarians had to attack them by detachments in the narrow strait, and so ran foul of one another, routed them, though they resisted till the evening drew on, and thus bore away, as Simonidas says, that fair and notorious victory, than which no more brilliant exploit was ever performed upon the sea, either by Hellenes or barbarians, through the manly valor and common ardor of all who fought their ships, but through the clever judgment of Themistocles. After the sea fight, Xerxes, still furious at his failure, undertook to cany moles out into the sea, on which he could lead his infantry across to Salamis against the Hellenes, damming up the intervening strait. But Themistocles, merely by way of sounding Aristides, proposed, as though he were in earnest, to sail with the fleet to the Hellespont, and break the span of boats there, in order, said he, that we may capture Asia in Europe. Aristides, however, was displeased with the scheme, and said, Now, indeed, the barbarian with whom we have fought consults his ease and pleasure, but should we shut up in Hellas, and bring under fearful compulsion a man who is lord of such vast forces, he will no longer sit under a golden parasol to view the spectacle of the battle at his ease, but he will dare all things, and, superintending everything in person because of his peril, will rectify his previous remissness and take better counsel for the highest issues thus at stake. We must not, then, said he, tear down the bridge that is already there, Themistocles. Nay, rather, we must build another alongside it, if that be possible, and cast the fellow out of Europe in a hurry. Well then, said Themistocles, if that is what is thought for the best, it is high time for us all to be studying and inventing a way to get him out of Hellas by the speediest route. As soon as this policy had been adopted, he sent a certain royal eunuch, whom he discovered among the prisoners of war, by name Amasis, with orders to tell the king that the Hellenes had decided, since their fleet now controlled the sea, to sail up into the Hellespont, where the strait was spanned, and destroy the bridge. But that Themistocles, out of regard for the king, urged him to hasten into home waters and fetch his forces across. He himself, he said, would cause the allies all sorts of delays, and postponements in their pursuit. 
No sooner did the barbarian hear this than he was seized with exceeding fear and speedily began his retreat. This thoughtful prudence on the part of Themistocles and Aristides was afterwards justified by the campaign with Mardonius, since, although they fought at Plataea with the merest fraction of the armies of Xerxes, they yet stake their all upon the issue. Among the cities now Herodotus says that Aegina bore away the prize of valor. But among individuals all virtually awarded the first place to Themistocles, though their envy made them unwilling to do this directly. For when the generals withdrew to the isthmus and solemnly voted on this question, taking their ballots from the very altar of the god there, each one declared for himself as first in valor, but for Themistocles as second after himself. Then the Lacedaemonians brought him down to Sparta, and while they gave Eurybiades the prize for valor, to him they gave one for wisdom, a crown of olive in each case, and they presented him with the best chariot there was in the city, and sent three hundred picked youth along with him to serve as his escort to the boundary. And it is said that when the next Olympic festival was celebrated, and Themistocles entered the stadium, the audience neglected the contestants all day long to gaze on him, and pointed him out with admiring applause to visiting strangers, so that he too was delighted, and confessed to his friends that he was now reaping in full measure the harvest of his toils in behalf of Hellas. And indeed he was by nature very fond of honor, if we may judge from his memorable sayings and doings. When, for example, the city had chosen him to be admiral, he would not perform any public or private business at its proper time, but would postpone the immediate duty to the day on which he was to set sail, in order that then, because he did many things all at once and had meetings with all sorts of men, he might be thought to be some great personage and very powerful. Surveying once the dead bodies of the barbarians, which had been cast up along the sea, he saw that they were decked with golden bracelets and collars, and yet passed on by them himself, while to a friend who followed he pointed them out and said, Help thyself, thou art not Themistocles. Again, to one who had once been a beauty, Antiphates, and who had at that time treated him disdainfully, but afterwards courted him because of the reputation he had got, Young man, said he, it's late, it's true, but both of us have come to our senses. Also, he used to say of the Athenians, that they did not really honor and admire him for himself, but treated him for all the world like a plane tree, running under his branches for shelter when it stormed, but when they had fair weather all about them, plucking and docking him. And when he was told by the Seriphian that it was not due to himself that he had got reputation, but to his city, True, said he, but neither should I, had I been a Seriphian, have achieved reputation, nor wouldst thou, hadst thou been an Athenian. Again, when one of his fellow generals, who thought he had done some vast service to the city, grew bold with Themistocles, and began to compare his own services with him, with the festival day, said he, the day after once began a contention, saying, Thou art full of occupations and wearisome, but when I come, all enjoy at their leisure what has been richly provided before him, to which the festival day replied, True, but had I not come first, thou hadst not come at all. So now, said he, had I not come at that day of Salamis, 
where would thou and thy colleagues be now? Of his son, who lorded it over his mother, and threw her over himself, he said jestingly, that the boy was the most powerful of all the Hellenes, for the Hellenes were commanded by the Athenians, the Athenians by himself, himself by the boy's mother, and the mother by her boy. Again, with the desire to be somewhat peculiar in all that he did, when he offered a certain estate for sale, he bade proclamation to be made that it had an excellent neighbor into the bargain. Of two suitors for his daughter's hand, he chose the likely man in preference to the rich man, saying that he wanted a man without money rather than money without a man. Such were his striking sayings. After the great achievements now described, he straightway undertook to rebuild and fortify the city, as Theopompus relates, by bribing the Spartan ephors not to oppose the project, but, as the majority say, by hoodwinking them. He came with this object to Sparta, ostensibly on an embassy, and when the Spartans brought up the charge that the Athenians were fortifying their city, and Polyarchus was sent expressly from Aegina with the same accusation, he denied that it was so, and bade them send men to Athens to see for themselves, not only because this delay would secure time for the building of the wall, but also because he wished the Athenians to hold these envoys as hostages for his own person. And this was what actually happened. When the Lacedaemonians found out the truth, they did him no harm, but concealed their displeasure and sent him away. After this, he equipped the Piraeus, because he had noticed the favorable shape of its harbors, and wished to attach the whole city to the sea, thus, in a certain manner, counteracting the policies of the ancient Athenian kings. For they, as it is said, in their efforts to draw the citizens away from the sea, and accustom them to live not by navigation, but by agriculture, disseminated the story about Athena, how, when Poseidon was contending with her for possession of the country, she displayed the sacred olive tree of the Acropolis to the judges, and so won the day. But Themistocles did not, as Aristophanes the comic poet says, nad the Piraeus on to the city. Nay, he fastened the city to the Piraeus, and the land to the sea. And so it was that he increased the privileges of the common people as against the nobles, and filled them with boldness, since the controlling power came now into the hands of skippers and boatswains and pilots. Therefore it was too that the bima in Fix, which had stood so as to look off towards the sea, was afterwards turned by the thirty tyrants so as to look inland, because they thought that maritime empire was the mother of democracy, and that oligarchy was less distasteful to tillers of the soil. But Themistocles cherished yet greater designs, even for securing the naval supremacy. When the fleet of the Hellenes, after the departure of Xerxes, had put in at Pegasi, and was mountering there, he made a herring before the Athenians, in which he said that he had a certain scheme in mind, which would be useful and salutary for them, but which could not be broached in public. So, the Athenians bade him impart it to Aristides alone, and, if he should approve of it, to put it into execution. Themistocles accordingly told Aristides that he purposed to burn the fleet of the Hellenes where it lay. But Aristides addressed the people, and said of the scheme which Themistocles proposed to carry out, that none could be either more advantageous or more iniquitous. The Athenians, therefore, ordered Themistocles to give it up. 
At the Amphictyonic or Holy Alliance conventions, the Lacedaemonians introduced motions that all cities be excluded from the alliance, which had not taken part in fighting against the Mede. So, Themistocles, fearing lest, if they should succeed in excluding the Thessalians and the Argives and the Thebans too from the convention, they would control the votes completely and carry through their own wishes, spoke in behalf of the protesting cities, and changed the sentiments of the delegates, by showing that only thirty-one cities had taken part in the war, and that the most of these were altogether small. It would be intolerable, then, if the rest of Hellas should be excluded and the convention be at the mercy of the two or three largest cities. It was for this reason, particularly, that he became obnoxious to the Lacedaemonians, and they, therefore, tried to advance Simon in public favor, making him the political rival of Themistocles. He made himself hateful to the allies also, by sailing round to the islands and trying to extract money from them. When, for instance, he demanded money of the Andrians, Herodotus says, he made a speech to them and got reply as follows. He said he came escorting two gods, persuasion and compulsion, and they replied that they already had two great gods, penury and powerlessness, who hindered them from giving him money. Timurian, the lyric poet of Rhodes, assailed Themistocles very bitterly in a song to the effect that for bribes he had secured the restoration of other exiles, but had abandoned him, though a host and a friend, and all for money. The song runs thus. Come, if thou prizest Pausanias, or if Xanthippus, or if Leotichidas, then I shall praise Aristides, the one best man of all, who came from sacred Athens, since Leto loathes Themistocles, the liar, cheat, and traitor, who, though Timurian was his host, by navish monies was induced not to bring him back into his native Lalysis, but took three talents of silver and went cruising off to perdition, restoring some exiles unjustly, chasing some away, and slaying some. Gorged with monies, yet at the isthmus he played ridiculous host with the stale meat set before his guests, who weighed thereof and prayed heaven no happy return of the day for Themistocles. Much more wanton and extravagant was the raillery which Timurian indulged in against Themistocles, after the latter's own exile and condemnation. Then he composed the song beginning. O Muse, grant that this song be feigned throughout all Hellas, as it is meet and just. It is said that Timurian was sent into exile on the charge of Medizing, and that Themistocles concurred in the vote of condemnation. Accordingly, when Themistocles also was accused of Medizing, Timurian composed these lines upon him. Not Timurian alone, then, made compacts with the Medes, but there are other wretches too. Not I alone am brushless, there are other foxes too. And, at last, when even his fellow citizens were led by their jealousy of his greatness to welcome such slanders against him, he was forced to allude to his own achievements when he addressed the assembly, till he became tiresome thereby, and he once said to the malcontents, Why are you vexed that the same man should often benefit you? He offended the multitude also by building the temple of Artemis, whom he surnamed Aristobul, or best counselor, intimating thus that it was he who had given the best counsel to the city and to the Hellenes. This temple he established near his house in Melita, 
where now the public officers cast out the bodies of those who have been put to death, and carry forth the garments and the nooses of those who have dispatched themselves by hanging. A portrait statue of Themistocles stood in the temple of Aristobul, down to my time, from which he appears to have been a man not only of heroic spirit, but also of heroic presence. Well then, they visited him with ostracism, curtailing his dignity and preeminence, as they were wont to do in the case of all whom they thought to have oppressive power, and to be incommensurate with true democratic equality. For ostracism was not a penalty, but a way of pacifying and alleviating that jealousy which delights the eminent, breathing out its malice into this disfranchisement. End of Themistocles Part 2